At this point, every information portal is saturated with mindfulness content. But this show is a unique, unusual, curious take on mindfulness. Some of what you hear will be completely new to you. Let's dive in and take a look at the nature of the aware mind. I invite you to deepen your awareness so that you may be liberated and inspired. I'm Sarah Vallely, professional coach. I help people overcome anxiety, heal from past trauma, improve their relationships, and maintain better work-life balance. The Aware Mind is now sponsored by Renva Turmeric Shakes. There are three wonderful flavors, vanilla chai latte, peanut butter cup, and ginger lemon drop. They are so yummy, and you can find them on Amazon. Just put Renva Turmeric Shake into the search, and they will come right up. Welcome to the show. Our topic today is getting started with a meditation practice. And my guest and I are going to share our own personal experiences with how we got started with our meditation practices. My guest today is Eliza Meadows. She is a licensed mental health counselor and a certified nutritionist. And she also helps people reduce stress and anxiety with the mindfulness practice. Welcome to the show, Eliza. Thank you, Sarah. Happy to be here. People often ask me what led me to my mindfulness practice. I can share a long convoluted story here. I think I've been doing my podcast for I'm in my third year now, and I don't think I've shared this story yet. So, so this is fun. My parents were both meditators. So as young as two years old, I was going to an ashram with my dad for extended periods of time. And I have memories at home with my mom when I'm three and four years old, sitting with her while she was meditating. And then after that, I don't really have many memories of meditating until my late 20s. And I took classes at the Berkeley Psychic Institute in Berkeley. And then I moved to LA and I worked with a shaman in LA for four years. We did a very specific kind of meditation, which involved past life regression. We basically led ourselves through our own past life regressions and saw about maybe three different past lives in a single meditation. So I did that for about four years. And then I moved to Asheville 20 years ago, I missed meditating with my group in LA. So I wanted to find a group to meditate with. And I found a very small group of only four people. They were insight meditation, Vipassana meditators. I sat with them, but I did my own thing. I was like, I just want to sit with them and I'll do my own meditation. But about a year later, I kind of moved over to the other side <laughs> and I started doing the meditations that they were doing, which is the uh, very classic mindfulness insight meditation. And I started reading Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield. And I worked with a teacher named Hugh Byrne, who works out of the Insight Meditation Center in Washington, D.C. He teaches with Tara Brock, um, if you've heard of her. And I also started listening to Tara Brock Dharma Talks. So that was about 15 years. So I really made my big shift about 15 years ago. 
When I was learning insight meditation, I was grasping the concepts pretty well, but the one that I struggled with the most was reconciling non-action and action, the non-doing and the and the action. I really had a hard time understanding the action part if we're doing all this non-doing. And so I sat with Hugh and he really helped me understand that and what he explained to me, right thought, right speech, and right action. And he said that when we sit, in the quiet and in the stillness that what comes out of that is right thought, is right speech, and then right action. So that really tied it all together for me. Around that time, I challenged myself to meditate for 60 minutes a day, every single day for as long as I could. And I did that for nine months and it absolutely changed my life. I just was operating from a completely different place after that, much more focused, centered, more gratitude, more feeling just a general sense of support in the universe. Eliza, I'd love to hear your story. How, how did you move into your mindfulness practice? Your story is really unique. I think you're the first person I've heard that literally has a lifetime of experience. First, it did just come through curiosity. As a kid, I was interested in the power of the mind, you know, had seen these pictures of like a yogi sitting in meditation, but levitating off the ground or something, you know, I thought, wow, what is that? I want to be able to learn to harness the power of my mind. So I kind of dabbled in doing some yoga in my 20s. And then I took a course in college called Buddhist and Taoist psychology. It introduced us more formally to meditation. And it was pretty cool, actually. I still remember the final exam was that we had to sit for two hours in a dimmed room. He said, just sit there for two hours. That's all. That's how you pass the final. But it wasn't until after grad school, when I was spit out into the world with this self-inflicted pressure to really be somebody now. I had gotten my degree in psychology and in nutrition, didn't know what I was going to do. I was job hunting. I wasn't getting hired anywhere and realized that I had a lot of anxiety. A friend of mine who was a therapist gave me a meditation CD. She just said, well, maybe this will help. Just listen to this. It was just the sound of a singing bell for 30 minutes with some monks chanting voices. You couldn't tell what they were saying. So there was no further instruction, but I knew enough to simply listen and know that I was listening. If my mind would wander somewhere else, I would notice my mind was wandering and come back to notice that I was listening. After the first 30 minutes, I felt better. I felt less anxious, more settled, and I started doing it every day. Something immediately started to shift in my life. I started reduce the amount of weed I was smoking, uh, reduce the amount of alcohol I was drinking, reduce the amount of late night snacking. I was going from one pleasure seeking distraction to another, just hopping around. I had just gone through a really big breakup, was living on my own for the first time. There was lots of reasons that I was feeling uncomfortable in my life. Then a friend of mine said, well, you know, you can do these 10 day Vipassana retreats. <laughs> and I thought, well, that sounds awful. Dude, I mean, I could sit for two hours, but to sit for 10 days? Oh my gosh. I hadn't been hired at a job yet. 
thought, well, who knows when the next time is going to be when I've got 10 days. What's the big deal anyway? Why do I feel so intimidated by this? And I just, I kind of took it on as a personal challenge. Let's just see what happens. I mean, what's, what's the worst thing that could happen? I'm going to be, I'm literally sitting there for 10 days and they're going to feed me and it's going to be fine. It's safe. You and some of your listeners are probably familiar with it. SN Goenka 10-day Vipassana retreats, and they're highly disciplined. They teach you a style of breath awareness and then what is known as the body scan of awareness of body sensations, one body part at a time, scanning up. I thought this must have been the hardest thing I could ever do. Planning my escape the first few days, get me out of here. I hated it. <laughs> and <laughs> But I kept on and kept on and had a pretty profound breakthrough on day five, where I realized the majority of my suffering was an inside job. It was coming from my own mind. There was nothing external that was really wrong in the moment. I had to finally come to terms with that. I was literally sitting in a controlled environment. The heat was fine. <laughs> you know, They were feeding us. There was nothing that I could contribute this level of suffering to. Everything was genuinely fine. And yet from inside of my mind, I was replaying every moment of my life that you know I felt a victim and all blaming, all kinds of things for everything it was really, really incredible. And I felt sort of humiliated to have these realizations that I had been personally responsible for most of my suffering yet blaming others. And then it was really empowering. Okay, I have a lot more control than I thought over my mind and how I want to interact in the world. I was hooked very shortly after that, did my first month-long silent retreat at Spirit Rock in California and got to actually, um, Jack Kornfield was one of the teachers on that retreat. So it was neat to hear that he was an early influence of yours as well. And the other long retreat I did was at the Sister Center out in Massachusetts, where Joseph Goldstein lives and works, and out at um, Insight Meditation Society, and had the good fortune to sit for six weeks out there, and the learning is endless. Thank you for sharing your story, and I love that breakthrough that you had on your fifth day of the retreat and just really realizing that there is so much of our internal system that is worsening our experience of stress and anxiety. And that's such a good realization. So with your practice now, what would you say is some of your personal challenges with your own practice? Well, we have what we call the five hindrances. Doubt is one of them, as is restlessness, sleepiness, grasping, or aversion, I find doubt and restlessness seem to be the two that visit me the most often. It's funny because the doubt sort of comes in different costumes. Sometimes it shows up as doubt that maybe I need something different. If I did something else, I wouldn't feel restless or I wouldn't feel confused or uncertain. It can come in this form of fighting against unpleasant experience. If I'm feeling unpleasant experience, maybe I'm doing something wrong. So maybe I need to change the way I'm practicing. Maybe I need to go on another retreat. Maybe I need to go on less retreats. Maybe I should be doing more walking practice. <laughs> and then I think like everybody, 
it is hard to set aside the time. I see that as another form of doubt, of not prioritizing it. I really should sleep in today. If I'm really going to be on my game, I should probably get this extra 15 minutes of sleep this morning. Knowing that that will cut into my meditation time, that's a questionable mind state. That If I'm really going to be on my game, that sleep is going to do me better than extra meditation, I'm not so sure. What helps is after doing a more formal period of practice, like a retreat, get used to doing you know, more minutes on the cushion per day. I'm with you on the, the doubt. That definitely affects me as well. One of my biggest challenges in getting myself on the cushion is doubt that it will help, doubt that it's working, which is ridiculous because I know intellectually that it, it definitely helps. I know on so many levels that it helps. So it comes from a deeper place than just this intellectual place. Uh, and then once I get to meditating, often some of my biggest challenges are around what I like to call task-oriented thinking, that I'm in this place of going through the things that I need to do and all the things that I don't want to forget to do. And so I will, you know, sit with that and notice that, use noting, and, you know, that might diminish to some degree, but then I'm still in that task-oriented mindset. And so then I start going along in my meditation as if it is a task and checking off the, mm. the steps and going through the things. So then I, you know, become aware of that and, and sit with that. But as far as the doubt, I have some pretty impressive statistics that I'll share that can clear mm. away on at least one level some of that doubt for folks. There's a study that was published in JAMA Network in 2020. In that study, healthcare professionals participated in five mindfulness trainings lasting 90 minutes each. They learned how to be mindful of their breathing. They learned body scan, walking meditation, mindful eating, and their anxiety reduced by 45%. So that's just five wow. training. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's incredible. Uh -huh. As someone who specializes in helping others with anxiety, I mean, this is why I get so excited about meditation. Right, it really works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got some more here. Uh, in Trends in Psychiatry and Psychotherapy in 2020, a study was published and the participants participated in eight trainings and they learned the same practices as the study before. And this was a depression study and their depression decreased by 75%. Eight trainings, 75%. Jaw dropping. Yeah. I would imagine that a lot of that had to do with the acceptance piece, right? When we really sit yeah. in the meditation, we move into this acceptance and that might be what really pushed these folks you know, out of some of their depression. And in pain medicine, Another study was published in 2020. This group met for four 90-minute sessions. Their back pain reduced by 78%, their arthritis pain by 48%, and their neck pain by 52%. So absolutely mind-blowing how meditation can really help with pain. And I remember some of the retreats I've been in the past, meeting people who were there because of chronic pain. They were learning this practice to, um, to manage and, and sit with and be and accept, be in a better place with their pain. 
And one of my favorite studies is the American Psychological Association published this study around implicit bias. They led them through a 10-minute meditation of simply noticing their body sensations and noticing their thoughts without judgment. That was all just for 10 minutes. This is unbelievable. Their implicit bias dropped by 81%. I was like, (laughs) 10 minutes. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, you know, just what you described, so it, it can help on both ends of the spectrum of mood challenges, anxiety, depression, and help with physical pain. I don't know what you would categorize implicit bias, but maybe, you know, like a stuckness or something, a tendency of the mind to go down the same pathway over and over again. So it suggests that it offers some plasticity or some new ways of thinking about things. Yet, when we're being instructed to do meditation, you're not being instructed to try to feel happier try to move away from your pain or try to ignore your pain or try to think in new ways. Sometimes I say the relief of symptoms is the side effect of meditation. Like don't, we're not trying to feel better, but you probably will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It's like it, research shows you probably will. When I think of implicit bias, I think of that automatic thinking that is a judgment on a group of people, a gender, a a body style, so dangerous to our social constructs. And just one more, I love this one too. If you meditate for 20 minutes a day for at least six months, the physical construct of your brain changes. And this is what I think happened to me when I did my 60 minutes of meditation every day for nine months. I think my physical brain actually shifted. I just was operating on different hardware. It was really obvious to me. So really powerful. Absolutely. I have no doubt that my brain must be physically changed by the practice so helpful to hear the science behind it to motivate us when we are feeling doubtful. We are going to take a 30 second break. You have asked for it and it is here, a free monthly TSD mindfulness online meditation group. Join us every third Saturday at 10 a.m. New York time, which is 3 p.m. London time. You will receive instruction, participate in discussion, and experience a guided meditation. Register at T as in tame, S as in soothe, D as in dwell, mind as in mindfulness.org. And we're back. I think one of the changes often is your cortex and that you you grow more gray matter there. So you're actually literally able to process your emotions better with with more gray matter. So yeah, that's just one example. Mm -hmm. Wanted to talk about the differentiation between a formal mindfulness practice and an informal mindfulness practice. So when I think of those differences, I think of a formal mindfulness practice being you're sitting in meditation, uh, you're sitting up cross-legged and you are focusing either on your breath or you're being more open and noticing what thoughts are coming to mind. An informal practice would be more 
using mindfulness during an activity during the day, maybe you're washing your dishes and you, you know, really tune into the physical feeling of the water on your hands and the, um, the sounds of the water, or you are uh, in a conversation and you're noticing that you're in a lot of judgment and just invite yourself to maybe move into a little bit more neutral mindset. Is that how you would describe the difference? Yeah, absolutely. When I was doing my certification to be uh, trained as a mindfulness-based stress reduction instructor, that was a key point of the instruction that we received to teach others is these two ways that you can include mindfulness and meditation into your life and the importance of doing both, that you can always be gaining some benefit from mindfulness whether your lifestyle or whatever's happening for you might lend itself to a little bit more of one or the other. Do you have a preference? What do you think? Mm, I really think it's important to have a little bit of both and to have the flexibility. There's been times where I just didn't have much of a sitting practice for whatever was going on, just could not get myself onto the cushion. Those times might be where I'm trying to do a mindful walking the dog, mindful brushing the teeth, mindful putting on my shoes in the morning. I actually kind of like mindful driving. My clock went out in my car and I didn't wear a watch. This is before smartphones even, so I didn't have any other timer in my car. And I realized whether I'm watching the clock or not, I get to the place at the same time. What a relief not to be watching the clock. I could, you know, loosen up on the steering wheel, really enjoy the comfortable seat, maybe unroll the windows. Definitely, I prefer silence and driving. And I think that can be a really nice informal practice if you are somebody who requires, you know, a commute in the car every day. I love the idea of this mindful driving. So back 10, 15 years ago, when I was meditating a lot, I did not listen to music in the car that supported that practice of mindful driving. And I designated a certain road in which I would definitely be in mindfulness. And that's the Blue Ridge Parkway. Whenever I got on the Blue Ridge Parkway, mm. I said, okay, this is my time where when I drive, all I'm going to do is notice the trees. All I'm going to do is listen to the sounds. All I'm going to do is notice what's going on in my body whenever I'm on the Blue Ridge Parkway. And I need to go back to that. I haven't been doing that think that both are so key. And I think the relationship between the two is, is I believe that the sitting practice really supports your during the day mindful moments, right? So without a sitting practice, yeah. it's harder to take those pauses. It's harder to notice those times a day that it's really probably good for you to take those pauses. So it can really set you up for success on that. So I also wanted to talk about meditation apps. And I'll be honest, I, this is kind of a charged subject for me. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the meditation apps, but I will say that they're a great entry point. And I'm so glad that you know, so many of these people that I've come in contact with, whether they're my clients or they're in my meditation classes, a lot of their stories involve finding their mindfulness practice 
in the beginning through a meditation app, but I really hesitate to believe that you really can have that deep practice through an app. And so as a mindfulness teacher, I'm often getting people off the apps when they're in my classes. A couple of the reasons that I think that the apps get in the way of having a deeper practice is, one, I think it's difficult to have some of these true insights while you're being guided in a meditation. I think that, you know, going more solo and, and guiding yourself, you're more open to some of these insights. And when I use the word insight, you know, for me, an insight might be, wow, I'm really grateful or change is safe and it's okay. Change doesn't have to be scary. The other issue I see is the apps remove that solo piece. When I think of a true mindfulness practice, I think of a solo vision quest, meaning that we really are there on our own and we really within ourselves, we need to figure it out in a sense and, you know, make that peace with ourselves I just think that aspect of really being on your own with your thoughts and with your body is key to your getting a lot out of it, feeling that empowerment. Uh, so Eliza, I'd be really curious what your thoughts are. It's so simple to just keep coming back to the present moment with your senses, aware of what your mind is doing, bringing curiosity and compassion and so that doesn't require any technology. Apps offer some structure, some guidance, I think, to, you know, I mean, if you think about for me getting started, somebody handed me that CD and just said, just listen to this. And that gave me the sense of security, like I'm doing something for myself. I put it in the player and I hit play and then it's a set amount of time. And I felt good about taking that action on my own behalf to really treat myself with kindness, with wisdom. I think the apps can be in service to us in those ways. If my practice has gotten wobbly, I find myself sitting and just thinking and wandering mind, I can't find my center, I don't feel motivated, sometimes I'll listen to a guided meditation. And that helps me get back on track. The right way to do it, and I'm doing air quotes, is what leads to more peace, more happiness, less judgment. Yeah, I think it's funny to think somebody going, oh, I was going this beautiful drive on the Blue Ridge Parkway and I thought I might meditate, but then I realized I didn't have a signal or something you know, on my phone and I couldn't access <laughs> a guided meditation. So I guess I just won't meditate, you know, or something like yeah. that. And it's like, oh no, you've missed the, the point. You know, it's- I appreciate that. If we're not using it as a crutch, I think maybe that's the, the moral of the story here that we're using it more to push us into the depth when we're needing a little, a little help. So Eliza and I are both from the background of Vipassana. In that school of meditation, we often talk about open awareness and single-pointed focus as being two different techniques. Uh, most people who practice this type of meditation will do both simultaneously in the same meditation. Single-pointed focus is focusing on a particular aspect, which might be your breath or it might be your body sensations, or it might be the sounds. Maybe you're outside and you're listening to the birds chirp. 
open awareness is not listening to anything in particular, but instead seeing what's in your experience as a blank screen and whatever comes into that screen, whether that is a thought that comes into your experience or an emotion that comes into your experience or a body sensation or a sound, you're just kind of monitoring in a way what is coming into your experience. And this question of, you know, which one is better? I think open awareness is more fun because you're just sitting there observing and you're like, oh, this is what's popping up now. Oh, look at this other thing. And I think it is also the better technique for taking a look at the nature of your mind. So when we look at the nature of our mind, we're really noticing what is coming into our experience, especially our thoughts. And so I might notice the nature of my mind is really wrapped around tasks, what I need to do, or maybe the nature of my mind is a lot of rumination about something that happened in the past, or maybe I'm worrying about something in the future. So the open awareness is just so key for sitting and being aware of your own consciousness and, and what's happening, and also to become aware of the phenomenon of of the mind, which is that the mind often just comes up with these random <laughs> thoughts that really <laughs> might not have anything to do with anything. And you really can't see that and experience that until you really sit with open awareness and notice that randomness. And then for single-pointed focus, that's what I did when I did the 60 minutes of mindfulness meditation every day for nine months, I was doing single pointed focus with eyes open, looking at stacked stones. So for that portion of my practice, I really needed that to develop my concentration. When I work with beginners, I like to start out with single point of focus because I think it really does help meditators develop their concentration a little bit more, which then will support them in their open awareness practice because that can get really hairy. <laughs> it can get really, mm -hmm. you know, wrapped up in your monkey mind if you don't have that concentration piece. So I, I do suggest single point of focus for beginners. Liza, I'd really love your thoughts on that question. You know, do you have a preference between open awareness versus single point of focus? Whether for a beginner practitioner or just the beginning of a period of time of meditation, I think it is nice to do a single point of focus to develop some stability of mind so that you can track the changing nature of whatever object it is that is arising if you were doing more of an open awareness without some stability of mind that really develops in the concentration practice, you know, like squirrel, squirrel, <laughs> squirrel, you get more bang for your buck, I don't know, out of an open awareness practice if you have some concentration so that if there's an object of awareness arising, a sound, a sensation, a thought, or an emotion, you can stick with it, even though maybe the squirrel is running by, you can see that, but you can still stay with that object long enough to see it evolve or morph into something else. I think that's where a lot of the learning is in meditation, where we see something arise, we see it change, and we see it pass. I think starting with some concentration, getting that down for a while, maybe for the first few minutes of your sit, 
or maybe for the first weeks or months of your practice, and then beginning to play around a little bit more of opening and broadening out the awareness. I think you do see more patterns of mind when you're doing that, because it might be that what is most predominant for a season for you might frequently fit in one category. Maybe what always is coming up is physical pain. Maybe what's always is coming up is emotional pain or maybe just a tendency to plan in your mind you can kind of see like wow this is really the tendency of where i spend a lot of mental or physical energy in my life not because i choose to but because there's a habit pattern that sucks me into worrying or struggling with pain or planning i do think that a lot of useful and beautiful insight can come out of a more open awareness practice. Well, thank you, Eliza. I have so much enjoyed our conversation. I would love for you to share how people can get a hold of you and a little bit about your business and offerings. I have an office in Asheville, North Carolina, where I see in-person clients for nervous system regulation, for anxiety management, stress management, or what I like to call just personal evolution. Sometimes it's really nice to have somebody sitting with you as you're grappling with what the next step might be for you. I do a lot of work with people who have a history of trauma using a model, what we say is post-trauma growth, and that's called organic intelligence, and that is nervous system regulation. It brings in a lot of mindfulness. I also work virtually with people all over the world. I am a certified coach as well, so it lets me work across state lines. And then I am on the app Insight Timer. So I do a free 30-minute guided meditation every week and log into the free app Insight Timer and search under my name. Find me on Wednesday mornings. And I also have a course available on there. It's a 10-day course called From Chaos to Contentment. So I'm available at elizameadows.com. Well, thank you again, Eliza. The Aware Mind Podcast is a TSD mindfulness production. Please check out our show notes for upcoming events and links to additional resources. Please visit our website at tsdmind.org. That is T as in tame, S as in soothe, D as in dwell, mind as in mindfulness.org. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at tsd underscore mindfulness.